Back in the 80s, in the late 80s, there was a hostage situation, a series of them in Lebanon. Uh, Some Hezbollah militants took a number of captives and killed many of them, tortured all of them, and held them for the ones that that lived were held for a long, long time. One of them was a British envoy from the Church of England named Terry Waite, who went there on a humanitarian uh, mission to try to help, and they kept him captive for over 2,500 days, tortured him, blindfolded him, uh, abused him. He had, a, uh, he had serious asthma. They transported him at one point in a refrigerator. Uh, he did survive, and he was eventually released. And here's the part that I remember from years ago reading about, I believe it was Terry Waite, maybe Terry Anderson, I think it was Terry Waite. Here's the, here's the thing I remember distinctly reading about him. He loved, loved, loved classical music. And at the time, in the 80s, when he went into captivity, he listened to classical music on cassette tapes. And cassette tapes were handy, but there was always that hissing noise where the, pa- where the friction of the tape passes over the head. And so it wasn't really pure music. It had that noise. And then if you used the Dolby noise reduction, what would happen is it would kind of mute the sound. It wasn't that beautiful. While he was in captivity, they developed uh, digital media and CDs. When he came out of captivity, they say the, the first thing he wanted to do was listen to his music. And they said, here, they developed something while you're in captivity. Give this a listen. And on a high-quality uh, recording, they played his favorite classical music on CD. And he began to weep because of the beauty and because of the clarity of the music. And I think that way about a text like we have today, it, is, it would be easy for us just to hear the hissing and the noise and all the questions and the things we don't understand about it. But if you treat the Bible right, what happens is it, it, it comes into great clarity. In other words, one of the things I think you've got to do is you have to approach the Bible with, a lot of, with an inquisitive mind, with a lot of questions. Read the text and then asking the question, making observations, and then say, well, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does every piece of this mean? And then, you know, in this church for years, we've been devoted to what we call continuous expository preaching, which sounds pretty cool, right? And what it just means is that we just make our way through the Bible for the, our default method here in Bible teaching in the pulpit is going back to the Bible and just teaching one chunk at a time through the Bible in what's called continuous expository preaching. Now, that's our default method. It's not the only way we do it, but it's the way we almost always do it. On Sunday night, I'm doing a flyover of the Bible, and that's to really kind of give people bearings on the Bible so that wherever you read in the Bible, you're like, okay, I know what the big idea of this is. It helps you to understand every part. So I would recommend you don't have to. It's optional, but uh, I'd so seriously recommend that you make a part of your day to come back at 6 o'clock. Usually we go to about 7, 7.15, maybe 7.20 on a really you know, long-winded night. Uh, and then you're going to ha- want to hang around afterward and talk to people. I know it gets a, a little bit later sometimes, but we're doing fly over the Bible. On Wednesday night, in my, in my particular little chunk, we have a small class that meets in here, and I'm, gonna, I'm doing this summer teaching on the Psalms, starting with Psalm 1, making our way through the Psalms, so 150 Psalms. Continuous expository preaching. Now, that's different than running commentary on the Bible. Running commentary on the Bible is very valuable. If, in other words, if you were to take, matter of fact, Spurgeon did this, and I, think, I forget what he called it. I think he called it, um, you're fresh out of seminary. You should be helping me at this point. He called it um, uh, Bible reading. I think he just called it Bible reading. Well, Spurgeon would do Bible reading 
Um, so you don't know everything, man. You got to read up on this stuff, you know. Stick with me and I'll teach you these things. So, uh, so you, if you do this, uh, you do this uh, he did Bible reading. And what it, what it meant was that he would read the Bible and just explain as he went along. Not really a homiletical approach. Not really, here's the main thrust of this, but just here are some insights on the Bible. That's valuable. It's what I would call... Um, I would call uh, running commentary, but it's not technically preaching. As I, I believe what we try to do here is what we call, what, I, what I've heard called, it's not my term, uh, big idea expository preaching. And so what that means is that you take the Bible and a section of the Bible that you're teaching on, and you understand there is authorial intent. The author had an original idea intent of that writing. And that's authorial intent. There was an original author. There was an original audience. There was in the mind and in the heart of God, the Holy Spirit. We are a part of the audience as well. And what you find is amazing when you read the Bible consecutively or you preach through the Bible in continuous expository consecutive treatment of the Bible. What's amazing is how providentially God helps you land on the part you really needed just when you need it. It's just incredible. And that's really true. This week's an amazing. I earned my money this week. Make a note of that. I earned my money. Here's here's why I'm telling you that. Because the passage we're going to study today has a huge number of places that have interpretive difficulties. You could call them. Could mean this. Could mean that. In other words, many, many places in the text that we're dealing with, in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20, there are places where good people who love the Bible go, what does this mean? And there are good people who have differences of opinion about what it means. So again, we're into ex- continuous expository preaching. And I, big idea expository preaching is the idea that there is a central theme in every chunk of the Bible. And God had in mind that one central theme and that when we see that theme and we arrange that message for the church with application coming out of that one theme, something really cool happens. And all of a sudden, instead of having a fuzzy black and white of truth, what you get is high-definition video, and your heart starts to beat fast. And you're like, whoa, this is helpful. This is, even though you took me back in time, and even though we went back to a culture I'm not familiar with, and even though you even put in there a little bit of a history lesson, which I'm not necessarily interested in initially, what happened is now the truth of God comes into high-definition video. And this will happen to you today if you give your heart to this passage Whew, it's amazing. I want to jump into it, but I want to do it by kind of begin by showing you something that's kind of interesting. Here are some of the questions I had to deal with. This is why I said I really earned my money this week. Here are some questions as you approach this text. If you just read it, we're going to do that in a minute. Here they are. Matter of fact, let's go ahead and read it first, and then I'll jump into those questions. Let me read it to you. This is from Matthew chapter 16, of course, and verses 13 through 20. Then Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, And he asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. 
And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus Christ. See what I mean? I earned my money this week. (laughs) Okay, here's some questions that come to my mind. Okay, where is Caesarea Philippi? And is this significant in any way? Where is Caesarea Philippi? And is this significant in any way? How many of you think I've ever visited there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll talk about that. Here's another question. Why did Jesus say, (laughs) I'm the son of man? Who do men say that I, the son of man, he gives a name for himself. Who do men say that I, the son? Why did he say that? Why did he say son of man? Why does Jesus call himself son of man a lot? That's a good question, don't you think? Son of man. Hmm, okay. Here's another one. What did he mean when he said, on this rock? Oh, careful. You know, if I walked up to you and said, what's the church built on? What your answer would be? Jesus. And that would be right, because the Bible says that. Is that what this passage is saying? Because it sounds like he's saying, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. Who's he talking about? Some people say, well, he's saying he built the church on Peter. Or he built the church on the confession that Peter makes here in a minute. There's some other questions. He, no, no, no. C.I. Schofield, if you have a Schofield reference Bible, I think he says, Jesus uh, is saying, you're Peter, and on this rock, like little rock, big rock. So uh, that's, that's a question. Somebody said this, entire forests have been cut down to write the books, to put the arguments forward about who the rock is here in this passage. It's okay, in 30 minutes you're going to know. <laughs> it's, Trying to be funny there. All right. And then why does it say gates of Hades? And why does some translation say gates of hell, gates of Hades? What's the point of this? Is there some significance to this gates of Hades? This is transliterated. And so the modern translations like the New King James that I'm reading is transliterated, not translated. It's just kind of carried forward. It's kind of Greek word that you're reading. Hades. Why? Why does it say the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church? Isn't that kind of an enigma? Isn't that kind of mysterious to you? Do you I mean, could you explain it to your children right now? It's, good. it's a good question, isn't it? It's an interpretive challenge. Some of you go, yeah, I'm ready to do that. Good, good, good for you. Good, good. Move to the front of the class. All right. Keys to the kingdom. What's this about? And I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Now, now Jesus is talking about the church and the kingdom in the same paragraph. So if you're a good dispensational, some of you go, what is that? Something the doctor gives you? <laughs> if, you're a, if you don't know what it means, we'll stick around. We'll explain it to you. Don't, don't miss any of the services. A good dispensationalist is like, huh, this is interesting. He's talking about the church, and he's talking about the kingdom, and he's talking about it in the same passage. What's this about? Interesting. Don't you think that's a good question? It's like, well, I want to know the answer to that question. And he says to Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Then he says something that's kind of interesting. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose. What is that about? Do you know the answer to these questions? These are interesting interpretive challenges. In other words, when you do Bible study, you should always do it this way. Don't ever just do hunt and pack. Don't flip the Bible open and go, I'm going to like mystically obey whatever it says. That might get you in a little bit of trouble if you don't carefully interpret the Bible. It will get you in serious trouble. Don't ever do that. Bible is not a magic book like that. It never should be treated like that. Understand the Bible. A child can understand the basic message of the Bible, but a scholar will never plumb the depths of the Bible in life or in eternity. We're still going to be learning about the mind of God and the heart of God all throughout eternity. 
So in other words, you can keep studying the Bible all your life and answering the questions, but when you study the Bible, you want to do this like, use this, um, what they call inductive Bible study method, observation, interpretation, application. Observe, ask all the who, what, why, when, so forth questions. Then ask the what does it mean question. What does this mean? That's the interpretive questions. What does it mean? That's what we're saying with all these. What do these things mean? You got another one. He says in verse 20, now don't tell anybody that I'm Jesus Christ. Seriously now, does that seem a little weird to you? I mean, it's the Lord Jesus, our Savior, so it's not weird. It's the Bible. But it looks on the surface like a kind of difficult. Isn't this the same one who's going to say, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Tell everybody who I am. Why should a person be shy about who Jesus Christ is? Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My Father in heaven revealed that to you. Don't tell anybody. Well, that's weird, right? It's like, seems weird. So these are interpretive questions, and you got to ask, so what does it mean? Before you say, what does it mean to me, you got to say, what does it mean? And so this is what you should always be doing with the Bible. What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? When I went to Moody Bible Institute, which they say is the West Point of Christianity, I'm not sure that's true, but that's what they told me when I went there. It justified the tuition there. There was actually no tuition. It justified the room and board. They, they said every class, it doesn't matter what class you went to, they said observation, interpretation, application, inductive Bible study method. And I'm saying that to you. I'm saying that to you. Sometimes, for some reason, you may not get anything about out of my message. And that's okay. As long as you open up your Bible and observe and interpret and let the Holy Spirit apply it to you, you will grow because it is the word of God. This is an awesome thing. Very exciting. It goes into high definition video. And it, and it lands right on your heart. Right on your life. Right on whatever's bothering you. Right on whatever hurts you. Right on whatever questions you're asking. That's the way the Bible works. It's awesome that way. So these questions. As I talk about this passage today. I hope to give you some answers to these questions. Or certainly forward your diligent search of the word as you wrestle with what do these mean. We went to Caesarea Philippi. These pictures my wife took, uh, and it just gives you a little bit of an idea what a gorgeous place this was. I forgot to put my little map up here, so you've got to kind of imagine that you have down here is the Dead Sea, and of course just west of the Dead Sea is the city of Jerusalem. And then you go up the Jordan River, way up the Jordan River in Israel, you get to the Sea of Galilee that's shaped like a harp, right? And over on the west part of that is the place where Jesus spent most of his ministry. And over on the east part is the far country, Decapolis. We've been talking about the kind of Gentile nature of that. And way north of that, at the base of Mount Hermon, this beautiful place which is just south of modern Lebanon today. It's in the Golan Heights. Very beautiful, lush, beautiful place is this place called Caesarea Philippi. You can visit it today, and we, we got to do that. And I got, I just think about this kind of, whew, gives me chill bumps when I think about it. I prepared part of this message sitting on a rock in this very place with my little notebook. Let's think about that. I just, it's a very neat thing to get to do. And Lois took these beautiful pictures. This was a gorgeous place. The headwaters of the Jordan River are here. The water runs down out of the beautiful Mount Hermon mountain range. And this is the place called Dan. You know, when they talk in Israel from Dan to Beersheba, they mean from the extreme north to the extreme south. This is the extreme north in Caesarea Philippi. This is the place where this story occurs. And it is going to be 
really significant to understand what the story means. And that's why you want to interpret the scriptures in their grammatical context, in their historical context, and in their geographical context. Because there are things you're going to miss. If the Bible says it's Caesarea Philippi, ask yourself, why does it say that? Don't read over the geography of the Bible. Ask, why does it say Caesarea Philippi? So we went there, and this is beautiful. Now, this, uh, just a little example. You see up in the left-hand corner of my little picture there is that little kind of arch that's cut out because this is a cliff in Caesarea Philippi, and this is an ancient site of pagan worship to the god Pan. They, they, remember the, the god in Greek mythology, Pan, half man, half goat? Kind of weird, right? And if, if you wanted Pan on your side, if you believed in these deities, because he would strike a special fear in the hearts of people called pandemonium, panic, bad things. I heard a pastor say pancake makeup, all these bad things, these deceptive things. That's what he said. It's not my stuff. Yeah. But anyway, it was this. There was a temple built around this place to the god Pan. And, and they would make sacrifices to this dead god. Not this living god, but to this dead god. They built, there was a place that came out of the earth. That this Originally, there was an earthquake later which diverted the water. But originally there, the water came out of the rock in, in this, this uh, cave. And this was the place that they had built the temple around. And this is where they would make sacrifices. And this is where they would do unspeak. I'm not going to talk about it in church. Unspeakably perverse things to their gods. And if there's children and young people, women, here, it's just not something we're going to talk about. But imagine, we're talking about vile, vile practices, godless pagan things, Caesarea Philippi. No rabbi, no self-respecting rabbi would leave Galilee and take his disciples to the Las Vegas of Israel. No self-respecting rabbi would go to Caesarea Philippi with his disciples because this was a place that was well-known for its paganism, well-known for worshiping false gods. It's the place where you went if you wanted to misbehave. But Jesus had something to teach his disciples. He has something to teach us. He takes them into the heart of this place. And this is supposed to be the gate to the netherworld. So this cave, or this water that comes out, is popularly understood to be the gate to the netherworld. Another way of saying that would be the gate of Hades, or the gate of hell. And the Jews had that superstition. They had that feeling about it. So Jesus is taking his disciples of Caesarea Philippi to the gates of hell itself. And he's going to say to them in this pantheon of God, say, who do, say, who do men say that I am? Now does it start to go, oh, wow. This way, you see, when Jesus was teaching, don't get in mind that he just like hid in a basement room somewhere and drew on a chalkboard. He wasn't that kind of teacher. He's like, come with me, guys. We're going to talk about false gods today. Oh, we're going to go visit Caesarea Philippi. Are you serious with me right now? And who do men say that I am? So pretty interesting stuff. And this is a kind of a close-up. There are little alcoves for other gods. You've heard of nymphs, the female gods, bad, bad news. There are little alcoves for the gods and the nymphs. For, and these are other examples of those. We have much more. Now I want to make seven, or eight, seven observations and a conclusion. So I've got to move really fast. Seven observations that I want to make from this text that I think will be very helpful for us to answer these questions. And, and to understand this, if God has written a book and he had an original audience, that he had something he, that was, he needed to get this truth to that original audience. They needed it for their life. He knew that down through the quarters of time that we would gather here today, open our Bibles in our lap, and this applies to us today. 
You will see that in your life. I don't know what you're going through. But because it's God's word, it's living and breathing and powerful, you're going to go, oh, I get that. That's why God wanted me to study that today. And we do that by a real careful examination. Notice the first thing. Popular views of Jesus are usually wrong. Who do men say that I am? Jesus is walking along, perhaps at this very place, and he's saying to his disciples, so, who do men say that I am? A very pedagogical kind of teaching thing to do. So, who do men say that I am? The disciples say, well, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because none of them said, well, you know, I heard them call you the devil. Because they did. But they were like, if nothing, they were gentlemen. And none of them said, well, they call you the devil. You know, that's like, I suppose you didn't want me to say that one, right? They called you the the Pharisees, who are the ruling religious party today, said you're the devil. He's like, that, that answer was thrown out, you know, as extreme. And these were good answers. These were nice answers. They were wrong, but they were religious answers. They sounded good. They know there's something supernatural about you, so you must be Elijah or John the Baptist or Elijah or maybe Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus is like, hmm, okay. And then he says, and who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? In the culture that we live in, most people have some reverence for Jesus, and they're wrong about him. This is deadly wrong, scary wrong. And usually they're not like, he's a devil, right? People that you go to work with, some of them are like kind of weird like that. They got a bumper sticker, you know, I hate God and everybody else, I'm a vegetarian, you know, or whatever, you know, right? You, you, not to pick on you if you're a vegetarian, hats off to you. I, I don't have to call on you in the hospitals often, right? But anyway, <laughs> but anyway, here you got the people that say, I hate God, you know. Most, most of them, they go, I love God, I love Jesus. Jesus is all cool with me, you know, I love him, I like him. He's like, he's like the original hippie, he's so cool. Like, well, who do men say that I am? Yeah, that's what men say, but popular opinions about Jesus are usually wrong. And Jesus was pointing that out to them. Popular opinions about Jesus are usually wrong, and they were really wrong here. Ravi Zacharias, he's an interesting apologist speaker. He has a book he calls Christ Among Other Gods. There is only one God, Jesus Christ. But he has a book called Christ Among Other Gods. In other words, Christ compared to others who claim to be God. So there will be those who say, I don't believe in God. And there will be those very few who say, Jesus is the devil. But most people will say, Jesus is something special. But not say the same thing about Jesus that God says about Jesus. And that is the most damning, most dangerous, that's the worst thing that could happen to a person. And so popular views of Jesus are usually wrong. Here's another thing. Who is Jesus is the most important question on earth that anyone will ever ask. Okay, you see this in the passage. You're going to read it again here. He came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? This is taken from Daniel, son of man. It's a special term that only the Messiah would use. He uses it about himself to emphasize his humanity and his deity. And he likes to use it about himself. So he throws that in there. And they say, some say John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son, the living God. Who is Jesus is the most critical question on earth. Everything hangs on that. Your eternal destiny hangs on a right answer, a right heart answer to who is Jesus. So think about this just for a minute. I want to ask you the question, and it would be good for any pastor to say, I'm asking you, like Jesus says to Peter, to the disciples, and Peter answers, who do you say that I am? 
Listen now to the voice of Jesus saying to you, who do you say that I am? And then expand that a little bit and think, who does my wife think Jesus is? My husband, my, my son and sons and daughters. You know, everybody has their theories about raising kids and programs and, and systems and books and seminars and stuff like that. You know what I've learned over the years? This is the question. Who do my kids think Jesus is? That's the deal right there. It's a lot simpler than we originally thought. If you have children who love and who know and who love Jesus and know that he is very God, a very God, and they're convinced in their soul and their heart that he's in control of the affairs of the universe, that's all that they will ever need. Who do you say that I am? And your neighbors, who do they say Jesus is? The people who live up and down your street when they ride by on their bike at night or they walk their dog or they put their garbage out and you look at those precious people who are precious to God, do you know how they would answer that question? Who do you say Jesus is? See, that's the deal. Your job and your gifts are different. Everybody's different, but your job is to figure out how they would answer that question and somehow love them enough to help them get to the right answer about who Jesus is because their eternal destiny hangs on that. That's what we're to be about here. That's how we're going to fill the balcony in this church, helping people understand who Jesus Christ is. Are you with me? I'm on pretty firm footing here. That's just basic stuff, isn't it? Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? Third, third observation, it's God who enlightens the heart to who Jesus really is. Don't you love it that he says, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I think he's saying, dead God's all around. You're the son of the living God, Christ, Messiah. He's saying, you are the Messiah. He's got that right. He probably doesn't fully understand all of the messianic program at this point, but he's got a right answer. He's saying, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. This is a significant thing. It's so significant. Jesus looks at him and goes, Peter, you didn't come up with that from your training or your teaching or some flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My Father in heaven revealed that to you. And this is the way it always is. You might think about your neighbor that, you know, the guy taking the garbage out there. It's like, he's got messed up ideas about who Jesus is. Well, of course he does. And you're not going to enlighten him. God is going to enlighten him. You're just going to love him and tell him the truth. And when there are time, when, you know, when critical mass happens, he's like, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he has eternal life. That is our job, people, to go to them, not just to invite them, but to go to them and to say, Christ is the Son of the living God. And then for the Holy Spirit to whisper, he's right, he's right, he's your answer, right? That happened to you, didn't it? There was a time when somebody told you about Jesus, and that sounded like crazy witchcraft, that sounded like crazy mysticism, that sounded like crazy myths, but somehow the Holy Spirit began to whisper in your heart, what they're saying is true, and now you love him, and now you follow him, and now you serve him, and now you worship him, and now he's everything to you, and now you sing about him, because you answered the question, because you were enlightened by the Holy Spirit. This is the question. I'm hanging out with my wife yesterday, And we go to her favorite antique store, and I cannot tell you where that is. And uh, she loves to to just kind of grovel around in the bowels of this hideous store and buy things that we don't have room for, money for, and really, but she will say to me, what do you think of this? And I never can actually say, 
I think it looks like worthless junk to me. That's how I, you know, I want to say, it looks like worthless junk, you know. That's, uh, my, you know, my honest thing is like, it looks like something my grandma threw away years ago. And she's like, isn't this awesome? And I'm like, I want to go, no. But I know you don't do that. I'm going, I just have a series of answers like, hmm. <laughs> Yesterday, I was really subtle. You know, she had a piece she was looking at, and it looked okay here. And I went around back. I'm like, help me, Lord. You know, I went around back. I'm going, hey, look at it from behind. And she comes around behind and goes, oh, yeah. I'm going, yeah. <laughs> so I go outside after a while. I look at all the books, the antique books. And after a while, it's like, you know, you've seen all them. And that's the interesting part to me. And then I go out, and there's this really comfortable chair under a shade tree. It's a gorgeous day, and the wind is just blowing. And I sit down, and this chair is very comfortable. I'm like, I like this chair. And so I'm reading on my phone and just enjoying sitting there. And I'm watching this guy. And he's working there. This place that I'm not going to tell you where it is hires eccentric people. Like really colorful, cool, eccentric, weird people. Good at customer service, weird, crazy, fun to watch, you know. But this guy is out there, and he's helping these people who are determined to put this huge hutch in the back of a Volvo. And it isn't going to go in. I'm like, why don't you guys look like you're smart? Measure. It's not going in there. But they're like, try. And he doesn't want to carry it. He's like, he comes to another guy, and he goes, this, is the heavy, this must be made out of marble. This is the heaviest thing I've ever carried. Which being interpreted is, please don't make me try to stuff this in the back of your Volvo, you know. That's what he's doing. And they're like, well, I think it might fit if you put it in on an angle. And I'm just sitting there. I'm not that sharp, but I'm going, that is not going to fit in there unless you destroy it first or the car or, or both. So they go off and they get another SUV. And I just head <laughs> over by the space of about an hour. I'm watching this unfold. And the guy has a great sense of humor about it. You can tell he totally doesn't want to carry this thing. But he has a really great sense of humor. He's kind of well-read. He's, he's kind of inserting literary uh, kind of um, references and poetry and humor. And he's like, I'm liking the guy. I'm like, that guy's crazy, you know. And, and so I'm just you know, kind of developing a wordless appreciation for this guy. Not your average furniture loader guy, you know. And so after a while, they go get another SUV, and it won't, <laughs> it won't go in there. This story's kind of getting long, sorry. And it won't go in there. I, I guess I'm not really sorry, but I should say that. Anyway, so it won't go in there. And so finally, go, well, we might have to rent a truck. And uh, he looks at me, and he kind of rolls his eyes, and I smile, and they drive away, and I go, they were persistent people, weren't they? And he goes, oh, they really were. He goes, I got I to gotta go back to what I trained for. I go, what would you train for? He goes, graphic design. I said, well, you're kind of doing a manual labor thing. Goes, yeah, someday I'm going to go back. I said, there's a, there's a lot to say for manual labor. I said, Jesus, he worked in manual labor for 30 years, and then in three years he changed the entire world. Which is a gambit, you know. If you say something like that to somebody, they can, like, freak. <laughs> or it can work, you know. In, in this particular case, he goes, I never thought. That's cool. And he goes, you know what? And Lois is standing here at this time. He goes, you know, I was thinking about him today. I go, where are you? I guess on the way to work, I was thinking about him. I got a picture of him right here. And he gets his wallet out. And he gets a picture of Jesus out of his wallet. It's like the shroud of Turin. You turn it like this. It's Jesus. You turn it like this. It's in the shroud, you know. And he goes, that really makes me think. And when we drove away... He looked at me, you know, with lively eyes, and he said, hey, thanks for that. 30 years, and in three years, he changed the world. I like that. And as I drove away, I thought, God, enlighten that neat guy to who you really, really are. Because if he's enlightened to who you really are, he's going to be a neat guy I'm going to spend eternity with. We'll probably laugh about that little moment right there for a long time in the crazy people with the Volvo. So the people that are in your life, Do you see how simple it is? Love them, and when you have an opportunity, slip in there 
how special Jesus is. Or give him a book about it, or give him a CD about it, or invite him to church, or invite him to barbecue. Just do that. That's it. This is kingdom work. That's the church. Jesus said, I will build my church that way. Man, do I have to move. Yes, I do really have to move. Okay, so number four, a right understanding of who Jesus is. Would you all come back tonight if I stopped right now? Okay, we're going to vote. How many of you promise to come back tonight if I stop right now? Raise your hand. Yeah, not enough. Okay. So, <laughs> I have you now. Yes. You, go, you got me this week, but I'm not sure about next week. Yeah, I know how that works. All right, number four. <laughs> a right understanding of who Jesus is is the foundation of the church. I, I'm going to cut through a lot of stuff, and you can study this on your own. Somebody says Peter is the foundation of the church. Some groups would say he has a special position that even the Bible doesn't talk about. Some would say, well, Peter was the foundation of the church in the sense that um, Jesus says, you, you are Peter, you're the, you're the rock. C.I. Schofield, I think you have in your Schofield Bible, that there was a play on words here, although this was originally spoken in Aramaic, not Greek. In the Greek, there's the two little subtle differences in the Peter. It's like small rock, Petra, big rock. And if they're standing at the base of this rock, that just kind of makes it interesting. And Jesus is saying to Peter, you're the little rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And the reason people say that is because the Bible does teach that Jesus is the foundation, especially the chief cornerstone of the church. So, But you have to pull that out of another passage and fit it in there. In this passage, you go to the next verse, and what does it say? And I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Who, Jesus? No, Peter. Did I lose you? Yeah, you're afraid to answer because you think, if, if I say yes, it's going to cost me 20 minutes. So I'll just do this the quick way. Peter is referenced in the next verse. Why would it not be Peter in this verse? You see, Peter in, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, he says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And Peter was an apostle. And the Bible says you get to Revelation and you have the chief cornerstone is Jesus, but the other stones and the foundation are the apostles. So there is a special significance to apostolic message, the apostolic teaching, and then went to... There's special authority there, there's special, but there's something true about apostles that is true also about us in terms of our authority based on the word of God, church discipline, so forth. In this case, I believe what the scriptures are teaching is that this is a reference to Peter, not as a pope, because the scriptures don't teach that. There are a lot of arguments we don't have time for right now. Because that, that idea that he would be a pope would come from somewhere other than the Bible, but not from the Bible, because the Bible says nothing like that. He's not present at church councils. He doesn't preside over others at church councils. He doesn't put himself above others. He does, there's no evidence that he went to Rome. There's just a lot of good arguments why that wouldn't be true. But there is this apostolic role that Peter had and that apostles have. And, the, and then there's this, there is this affirmation that he makes. And some say, now this is the foundation of the church. That may be getting pretty close because he says, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, on this foundation, on this rock, I will build my church. And that, that may very well be the case. That Jesus says, the church is being built on the confession of who Jesus really is. And that kind of fits, doesn't it? The, the stream of this thought. What is the foundation? What, this is certainly true. Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the church. What people believe about Jesus and an affirmation of Jesus as the Christ is the foundation of the church. It's the heart. And there's a geographical thing in here as well, but we got to keep moving. So now you have some things to think about, don't you? Fifth, the church of Jesus Christ will overcome all of her rivals. Ooh, this is the fun part. What's Jesus say? You're Peter. Upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. You guys are involved in something big here today. You guys are involved in something big in the smallest gathering of saints or place where you go to the coffee shop and you speak the name of Christ. That's church. 
assembly, gathering. And you go out and you help people understand who Jesus is and affirm with their mouth and believe in their heart who Jesus is. That's the foundation of the church. And that will overcome all its rivals. The gates of hell, the pantheon of gods will not overcome this. Whew, that's awesome stuff. You're involved in that. This isn't a petty business. This isn't like a little thing like you do like a club where you wrestle around a club. This is the church of the living God. This is the people of God that, that's an eternal. And there's more. Let me, let me give you a sixth thing. God's plan is to use men and women to build his church. You get to the next verse. Verse 19, he says, Peter, I like, he says to him, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth, we bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth, will be loosed in heaven. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth, we bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And the idea in the Greek there, the idea of the verb tenses in the Greek is whatever has been bound in heaven. In other words, it's true in heaven. It's going to be true, true on earth. The, the authority that we have is similar to the authority that he's talking about here that's specifically given and specifically said in the scripture that, that when we say to a person, I can assure you, that you will be born again if you believe what Jesus said about himself, keys to the kingdom. Does that make sense? I can assure you that if you sin willfully and will not repent, you're coming to perdition. We have the authority to say that in the church because we have the word of God. And I think this is a, a, a piece of what he's saying here. But the point, the overall kind of general point that's true is that Jesus is saying, I will build my church. And he's also then saying, and I'm going to use you, which is like, whoo, are you serious? I will build my church. I'm going to use men and women to do it. It's me doing it. And I like this because like one of these guys is Peter. I was like, I don't see Peter sitting around reading like John Maxwell. Do you? You know who John Maxwell is? You see Peter sitting around reading Peter Drucker? You see Peter going to motivational seminars and getting it all put together because he's a great leader and he's able to just inspire people because of his great leadership. You think that's what Peter did? You think that Peter was a foundation stone of the church because he was really organized? What do you think? How many of you say, yeah, that's what it was. He was really organized. Nobody wants to go there. How many of you think God did something special with this knucklehead? That's what happened. That's what happened. That's encourages knuckleheads like me. I'm like, Really? Do you mean to tell me that if I have in my heart beating in my heart a desire to be a part of your church, which, which upon the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and I get to be a part of that, even if I am not that organized or not that powerful or not that good or not that consistent, you will still use me to have the church overcome the gates of hell in a very pagan place? Answer is yes. I like that. <laughs> I need that. And you may think you're something, but you need it too. Every single one of you. The stuff that needs to happen in your life and in this church has got to take miracles from God. It just can't be organization. It's got to be God. It's got to be the Holy Spirit. It's got to be holy people praying and seeking God. And God has to breathe on it. But then he will use us, which is very exciting. And finally, don't you love it when I say that? This is kind of interesting. Be careful about zealots, people that are all heat and no light. Now, that's what verse 20 is about. This is, an, this is interesting because it gets into the geography a little bit too, and I'll go quickly. Look at verse 20. He commanded his disciples they should tell no one that Jesus is the Christ. Which does seem a little odd, doesn't it? Don't tell anybody. Why was this? Well, this is interesting because there are a couple of reasons. You know, 
In the next verse, he's going to talk about going and suffering. And soon after that, he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and suffer. And Peter says, no, don't ever do that. And he says, get thee behind me, Satan. To the same guy, he said, flesh and blood didn't reveal this, but my Father in heaven revealed this. So what's going on there? Peter knew he was the Messiah, but didn't really fully understand the messianic program that it involved suffering and dying. And there were a group of dangerous people that were called zealots, and some of them were on the inside of Jesus' team, (laughs) who were too eager to cut people's throats. As a matter of fact, you understand, in that culture, the Jewish people, many of them hated the Jewish zealots because they were so dangerous, they're going to bring the wrath of Rome down upon them. Josephus, who was a Jewish man himself, actually betrayed the zealots because he was trying, Josephus, the Jewish historian, he was trying to keep the zealots from destroying. But it happened anyway. The fall of Jerusalem was primarily the Romans trying to wipe out the Jews because of the zealots. And the zealots had a place called Gamla. Ask me if I've been there. Yes, I have. A place called Gamla. This was a headquarters. This was a hotbed. This was a flashpoint for zealots. And it was not far from Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus is saying, there's some hotheads around here that are going to do nothing but cause trouble. So keep it under your hat for a while. They don't understand who Messiah is. Let me die and rise again. And that's going to make a big difference. Because after I die and rise again, I'm going to tell you, go tell everybody. Does it make sense of verse 20? So you are a part of the church, of the living God. Don't mess around. Take hold. Notice this. The offensive force of the church of Jesus Christ on earth, this is it right here will be felt in heaven and on earth. So the church is on earth, and it just seems like us chickens, you know? Here we are. We're not that sharp. Here we are. We don't have it all put together. Like Peter, impetuous. Sometimes he, he answers right. Sometimes he answers wrong. Sometimes he says, Jesus says to Peter, you got that answer from God. Sometimes he says, you got that answer from the devil. <laughs> just like you and just like me. You got a good day. You got a bad day. It's a good thing. The church of Jesus Christ does not depend on you. It depends on the Holy Spirit. And what we do in the church of Jesus Christ on earth is going to reverberate in heaven and in hell. That's what it says in the text right there, verse 18 and 19. And so I call you as a church to not trifle with little things or petty things. I call you as a church to, to, to rise to the occasion and say, I'm a part of the church of the living God. And what we do is going to be felt in heaven and uh, in hell in a serious business. And I'm going to go help people understand who Jesus Christ is. That's what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to love people until I get a chance to somehow help them understand the most important question in the entire world. That is what our church's name is. Can you guess I'd love to talk more about this? But you've been a very patient audience on a hot day, so let's stand and pray, and I'll dismiss you until 6. How's that be? All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this amazing passage. Wow, is it just just staggeringly wonderful, all the different uh, nuances. It is the Word of God, the living God. And Lord, uh, we're very, very conscious of our own weakness, conscious of our own failures, conscious of our own inconsistencies, conscious of our own sin. Help us to be conscious of your power, conscious of your spirit. And I pray that you not leave us out We know that there will be churches that close and churches that go into apostasy and they are not blessed of God and they're not used of God and they're not really a part of the church of God. May that never be true with this church. May this church be a part of your church, the church. 
And may we ever be on the offensive again, and, and help us, Lord, to realize that we can move right into the places that are the dirtiest, darkest, most pagan places like Caesarea Philippi was, as I'm sure you're trying to teach your disciples. And have no fear, because you will build your church. In Jesus' name, amen.